0: Welcome
1: to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell, interviewing the leading doctors in the country to get insights into the best medical treatments available today. Not everyone has access to the best specialists, but you can advocate for yourself and learn the right questions to ask your doctor and the best possible treatment options. Remember, what you know can make a difference in your health care.
0: Welcome to The Smartest Doctor in the Room. I'm your host, Dr. Dean Mitchell. The goal of this and every podcast is to help our listeners learn from the smartest doctors so they can make the best medical decisions for themselves and their family members. Today, we will be talking about a very hot topic in health news, vaccines, what every parent and every pediatrician needs to know. As you'll see, it's really a consensus. The World Health Organization says that unvaccinated children are among the top 10 global health threats in 2019. I'm fortunate today to have one of the leading pediatric vaccine experts in the country, Dr. Paul Offit. Dr. Offit is the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology, and you'll learn why this name Maurice Hilleman is important, at the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania. He is also the Director of Vaccine Education at the Children's Hospital of Pennsylvania, he is also a co-discoverer of Brototech, the vaccine for the rotavirus. He is also a founding board member of the Autism Science Foundation. He also is the author of the book Vaccinated, which I have now read for the second time, which I found fascinating. And I state all of these merits, not just to impress all of our listeners, although they are quite impressive, but as you will see in the podcast, they will have significant importance in our discussion. So without further delay, I'd like to welcome Dr. Paul Offit. Thank you. Dr. Offert, you are frequently interviewed about vaccines in the lay media, in the New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, television. But today's podcast, I really want to give our listeners a great opportunity to hear in depth about the importance of vaccines and equally as important to address concerns that parents have about them. I sometimes like to start with to know how people got involved or interested in their specific career. If you would mind telling me, I know you mentioned in the book how you met Maurice Hillman, the discoverer of nine of the vaccines that are currently used today in pediatrics. Well, I believe you are a pediatric resident in Philadelphia. Is that correct?
1: I was a fellow, actually, in the Division of Infectious Diseases here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia.
0: Okay. And, and you mentioned in the book that it was interesting that, you know, Mr. Hilleman presented as very gruff and introverted and intimidating to a lot of people. This doesn't exactly sound like the person that would be, you know, like the charismatic, eloquent professor that might inspire a young professional resident. What was it about him that caught your attention? He was brilliant
1: and he was remarkably successful.
0: Mm. You know, he was able to
1: take the expertise and experience of a vaccine maker, Merck, and sort of grab them by the scruff of their neck and bring them along with him. With Merck, he was able to have the resources that enabled him to do what he did. Uh, you know, I, I I think only a company could have essentially done the primary research or development on nine of 14 vaccines during one person's lifetime. And he was just remarkable in that way. But he was amazingly gruff. I mean, he grew up kind of in the wilds of Montana. He was in the army, you know, for a while, you know, associated so with Walter Reed. And he was, he was a tough guy. So I've never met anybody like him. I've never seen anybody who was that smart, that well-read, that scientifically literate, and that gruff.
0: You know, that comes across in the book because what I find fascinating also, I mean, so many of us who go into medical training, never worked on a farm, never dealt with livestock. And, you know, the way he was so comfortable, you know, dealing... You know, with the the animals that he had to use to help develop the vaccine, struck me. And also, there was a quote in your book where he said, "You know, when you live on a farm, you got to learn to fix and do everything." And you know, as you know, in today's world of specialization medicine, and if it's like a little bit out of somebody's, you know, expertise, nobody likes to touch it with a ten foot pole. And you do get the sense that this was a guy that nothing was going to stop him and he was going to figure out how to help children and prevent, you know, serious childhood diseases. Yes,
1: he was never satisfied, it, it, even though, I mean, I was fortunate enough to participate with a team here at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia that spent really more than 25 years creating the strains and then ultimately doing the research and development that led to the, the rotavirus vaccine, as you mentioned. Hmm. That was one vaccine over a 25 to 30 year period. Here was a man who made nine vaccines, you know, during his lifetime, which is like trying to understand a, a fourth dimension or fifth dimension. So he was never satisfied. I, honestly, I think that, that, and I know this, I mean, when you asked him at the end of his life, what it was he regretted, he regretted that he didn't do more.
0: I know uh, those are the really the true giants, and as like you're mentioning, and of course, your work is, is tremendous. But even Jonas Salk, he invented one vaccine. Obviously, it was a very important one, maybe you know as or important as the other ones. But he became a national hero. And as you mentioned in the book, I had never even heard of Maurice Hilleman. and I am a student of immunology, so it it does tell you something, and probably again to the politics. You know, he wasn't a professor at a prestigious university, but like you said, yeah, he got the work done. You know, I sometimes like to bring into my perspective. So we're going to have a great discussion on, on vaccines. But, you know, I got very interested in medicine and actually ended up pursuing some infectious disease, immunology, and ultimately also allergy. I was inspired by a book by Bertrand Roucher. He wrote a book called Medical Detectives, and he used to publish articles in The New Yorker that chronicled doctors and scientists who were working with what was probably an early form of the CDC to like, uncover and stop mysterious infections. And, you know, they had some great stories about vaccines also in those stories. And, you know, in many ways, I think, as you even point out in the book, vaccinated, that vaccines in so many ways ushered in real science in medicine, where previously, obviously, a lot of unsubstantiated treatments prevailed. And vaccines, in fact, even preceded antibiotics by almost 100 years. And, you know, today I lecture at Terrell College of Osteopathic Medicine in New York City on clinical immunology. But I also have a private practice in Manhattan where I combined holistic medicine with immunology. And I do see adults, you know, who are parents that are wary of drugs and anything that the government or pharmaceutical companies promote. So I'm really hoping, as we're going to go through a bunch of important things, that we'll have a great, thoughtful discourse on how to address these concerns, yet convince parents that modern science has breakthroughs that are really more of a blessing than a curse. So the first thing I really want to jump into is the headlines. In fact, I'm a New York Times reader. and in the last two, three weeks, there have been two major headlines. One, February 22nd. The headline was, Japan battles the worst measles outbreak in years. Apparently in Japan, there was a religious group that avoided vaccinations and they had 167 cases of measles reported. The other headline, again, maybe I think a week ago, March 8th, Brooklyn, New York, here in New York where I practice, a yeshiva ignored a warning and one student gave 21 other students the measles. And in fact, New York City now has about 200 cases since the fall of 2018. Mainly this has been in the uh, Orthodox community. So Dr. Offit, I guess in plain speak, what the heck are we dealing with here? This is not, not just an American issue. This is worldwide, different cultures. What do you think is going on?
1: So I think when a critical number of people choose not to vaccinate their children, measles is always the first disease to come back because it's the most contagious Mm -hmm. of the vaccine-preventable illnesses. So this has always been true. Now, we eliminated measles from the United States in the year 2000. The only reason it's come back is that a critical number of parents, usually in various communities, made the decision not to vaccinate their children. And unless you have sort of over 90% of children in a community vaccinated, you're at risk of having measles comes back. That's what happened in Clark County, Washington, where Washington State had an outbreak, where Jay Innes, who was the governor, ultimately declared emergency. That's what happened with this ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, a fundamentalist community in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, New York, and also in Lakewood, New Jersey. So I, th- I think this is this is what
0: happens when people make that decision. Do you think that medicine, unfortunately, got too good? that we eliminated essentially these infectious diseases that people don't see anymore on a regular basis. And essentially, I always give the example, stuffed it in the bottle, and now the genie is getting out of the bottle. Is that, is that how you see it?
1: Yes, I think that's exactly right. I think vaccines have been a victim of their own success. I mean, I was a child of the 50s. I had measles. I had mumps. I had German measles. I had chicken pox. I had all those diseases because I was born well before those vaccines were invented. But, you know, my children, don't see these diseases. They didn't grow up with these diseases. For them, it's all a matter of faith. And I think what's worse is not just that we've essentially largely eliminated measles. Remember, we would have three to four million cases of measles a year before the vaccine. We'd have 48,000 people hospitalized, mostly healthy children. We would have, you know, upwards of 500 deaths a year. Now, you know, on the headlines almost every day we talk about measles, even though last year we had fewer than 400 cases. This year we have a couple hundred cases, which is a lot because we should have none because we can have none. But I think the problem is not just that we've largely eliminated measles. We've largely eliminated the memory of measles. I think people don't remember just how sick measles can make you and how dead measles can make you when enough people get infected.
0: Right, You mentioned in the book how the, um, that delayed encephalitis patients can get from the measles. That's what really concerned Dr. Hilleman. You know, you made me think about one other thing, too. I trained in the 80s at St. Luke's Roosevelt here in New York City. It was actually the height of the AIDS epidemic. But I'll never forget when I was working in the intensive care unit, there was a patient that had some type of restrictive lung disease, and they had in the basement of Roosevelt Hospital, they had the iron lung machine. I had no idea what they were, were talking about and they brought it out and they used to bring this woman who again had some severe type of chest deformity and they would have her stay in the, this cylindrical tube for like seven hours a day to help, you know, her breathing. And this was, we were told was what was used for the polio victims who had respiratory, close to respiratory failure. And I guess to, to even see that and of course you really have to look at you know old footage to see all the children that were disabled or even worse from polio virus
1: well, I was born in 1951,
0: and I had was born
1: with club feet when I was five years old. So in 1956, I had surgery on my right foot, which went badly. And as a consequence, I was in a chronic care facility in Baltimore called Kernan's Children's Hospital, which was a polio ward. And so there were 20 other children in that ward, virtually all of whom had polio. So I saw polio as a child. I remember polio and how devastating it could be and how, how vulnerable and helpless alone, and alone all those children were. I mean, this is... 1956, you know, it's not like there were therapy dogs, you know, and there were were iPads or televisions that were in that room. There was one visiting (laughs) hour a week because everybody was scared to death of polio. So my parents could visit me from 2 to 3 in the afternoon on Sunday. My mother was pregnant with my brother, and she was unable to leave the bed, and my father traveled a lot. So, you know, I pretty much was there alone for about six weeks, and I certainly will never forget that. I'm sure it probably has everything to do with why I chose to go into pediatrics Mm. and pediatric infectious diseases.
0: Yeah. Well, what do you think the difference is between, and obviously it's somewhat of a big one, the you know, parents back in that day were not anti-vaxxers. There was no anti-vaxxer movement. Kids, people were lining up, families were desperately lining up to get that vaccine because they were petrified from obviously their child getting polio. Is that because, again, as we were saying, it was just so current and visual versus what they don't see today?
1: Exactly, I think people are compelled by fear more than reason. They feared polio, they feared measles, they feared mumps, they feared German measles, which was a common cause of birth defects. They right. feared chickenpox at some level because still every year there would be about a hundred people that would die of chickenpox, about seventy to seventy-five of whom were healthy children. So you know we feared all those diseases, and so when the vaccines came out, we couldn't wait to get them. It's different today. I mean, I think people are complacent in the sense that they don't see these diseases, and so they assume. That they're invulnerable that those diseases can never come back and when they come back when the measles measles came back in southern california for example in 2014 2015 those mothers and fathers in southern california who had chosen not to get the vaccine couldn't wait to get it now because now the the disease was knocking at their door at least knocking next door and so they now fear the disease again it's sad that it has to come to that the children have to suffer in order to wake us up
0: but that apparently is what's happening so what do you think, because so we're going to talk on different levels of this, but this is obviously the most bold level, the anti-vaxxers, the ones that unfortunately, have, you know, spoke out against you so harshly and obviously worse, which is just really awful. What do you see? Does it have to be government intervention where you say you can't bring your children to school? You know, again, if a Jehovah Witness, I mean, I'm just using that as an example, back in the day, remember they didn't want to have their their, their child, you know, together, say a blood transfusion, even if it was life-saving is is this going to become an, a legal battle? Do you have any thoughts? I mean, you're obviously so much at the forefront of this. What, what do we do about these anti-vaxxers that you know claim religious you know reasons for this? Well, so
1: I think that's that's exactly the right question because I think where the rubber meets the road here in this current quote unquote controversy is at the level of the law. So, for example, when Washington State suffered its measles outbreak and the governor declared a, a national or a state of emergency in his state. What happened was they passed a law basically saying that if you went to school in Washington State, you had to get a measles-containing vaccine, because that was obviously best for the health of that state. I think you're right, in the 1950s and 1960s, and even in the 1970s, we really didn't have these religious or philosophical exemptions to vaccination. If you went to school, you had to be vaccinated. What I think is happening is what happened in California. When California had that measles epidemic in 2014, 2015, one of the state senators there, Richard Pan, basically introduced Senate Bill 277, which eliminated the philosophical exemption for vaccination. That's a state that never had a religious exemption. So when he then tried to eliminate the philosophical exemption, the only exemptions in in the state of California were medical exemptions. Therefore, if if that passed and it did pass... Um, where now you eliminated the philosophical exemption. If you go to school in California, including private school, you have to be vaccinated. The only way that you're not going to be vaccinated is if you either have a medical exemption to vaccination or you homeschool. That's it. And I think that's the future. I think that's that what happened in California predicts the future because it's enough of this. I don't think it should be your inalienable an alienable right as a United States citizen to allow your child to catch and transmit a potentially fatal infection. Also, what turned the tide in California, and I think this is a big part of it, was a little boy who had leukemia. His name was Luke. He would go to every one of these meetings where the, the anti-vaccine parents protested and say, what about me? I can't be vaccinated. I depend on you to protect me. Don't I count? right. He was the voice of society. And I think that ultimately turned the tide.
0: Yeah, I I think you make a great point. It's like you need those poster children. I think also people don't realize, I mean, I'm acutely aware of it because, as I said, I take care of a lot of immunological conditions. And although I use a lot of holistic, uh, which I feel are proven treatments, you know, I see a lot of patients on, you know, a lot of these new biologic medications, which suppress the immune system. So people don't even realize how many people are walking around in airports and everything on medications like Humira or Enbrel where I think they are more susceptible you know, to the dangers of being infected if they have lost immunity for whatever reason.
1: Absolutely, I, mm. that, those are that, that, those are exactly the biggest advances. These monoclonal antibodies directed against various aspects of our immune system. There are many more people walking around now that are immune compromised than we were before. Certainly, at least five hundred thousand people in this country of three hundred million can't be vaccinated. Right. They depend on those around them to protect them.
0: Right. All right. Let's move on to the the next level, which probably also gets less headlines, but it's more prevalent than we probably even realize and it's the vaccine-hesitant parents. And I thought there was a really thoughtful op-ed in the New York Times about a week ago by Wajit Ali. He's a playwright, he's a lawyer, he's married to a family doctor, and he wrote a a piece, he opened with the following question. He goes, why are parents not vaccinating their kids? What the hell is wrong with people? And he goes on to say that he thinks that's really how these parents are approached. Again, I'm quoting him, he said, people who I otherwise think of as intelligent and well-intentioned who aren't convinced that vaccines are safe. I see these people make rational choices in most other areas of their life. And I'd like to hear your thoughts on how to deal with a vaccine-hesitant parent. I see them in my own practice. I see people, too, who tell me, I, I'm not getting the flu shot, you know, adults, because it gives me the flu, you know, so which things we know are really not true. But I'm just curious, maybe again, how in your own practice at the hospital or how you even train your pediatric residents – to convince parents you know and how to win them over essentially
1: well i think i think it's not surprising that we're seeing pushback on vaccines you know we ask parents of young children in this in this country to vaccinate their children against 14 different diseases in the first few years of life, that can mean as many as 26 inoculations during that time. It can mean as many as five shots at one time to prevent diseases most people don't see using biological fluids most people don't understand. Right. I think it's perfectly reasonable for people to be, to question vaccines, to be skeptical about vaccines. I think you should be skeptical about anything you put into your body. So when people call me and they're concerned about vaccines, I get it. I, I understand that and I'm sympathetic to it. as a general rule, the the things they're concerned about, there are answers for. And so you can, in a passionate and compassionate, and compelling way, try and frame the science in a manner that answers their question. There are, however, a certain percentage of parents who aren't just skeptical. They sort of cross the line from skepticism to cynicism. They simply don't believe it. Right. They, they don't believe those studies. They think there's a big conspiracy by the government and pharmaceutical companies and medical establishment to hide the truth, right. all for the purpose of making money. Those people are unconvincible and, and depressing. I, I just uh, find it amazing that the conspiracy theories reign to the degree that they do, but, you know, whole presidents get elected on that.
0: Well, you know, premise. I'm so glad what you said because I th- I th- I'd like to deal with the first group, then the second one that depresses you because I think the first group is very important. And if we can, if you wouldn't mind, I want to go by – I have the list of the vaccines here. And, and again, even for myself, as I said, you know, having studied immunology and, you know, worked with adults and children – what your thoughts are, you know, and how the sequence goes. Because, again, as you probably have heard, I'm sure, a lot, you know, people have brought out about alternative vaccine schedules. Because, again, the elephant in the room is autism. You know, all the parents, which I can understand, we don't understand what causes autism at this point. And if they thought there was any which way that that complication could be avoided they'd be, I think, more on board. So let me ask you about some of the vaccines, if we can, and and just, you know, we'll have a little discussion about this. Okay, so hepatitis B is actually, from what I saw on the the sequence, is given right at birth, and then there's a second dose given at two months of age, and then there's a third dose given between six months and a a year and a half. My question to you is, I mean, I got the hepatitis B, the original Hillman vaccine that was made from the HIV and hepatitis B patients, (laughs) so I was a little nervous at the time. Why do the children need to get vaccinated to this at birth? I mean, are they are they really at such high risk? What's your thoughts on that?
1: If as a child, you're born to a mother who has hepatitis B, yeah. you acquire that virus during passage through the birth canal. Right. You have a 90% chance of going on to develop either cirrhosis which is to say chronic liver disease or liver cancer okay now now we do screen mothers to see whether or not they are infected with hepatitis b right but there's two things you need to know first of all no screening test is perfect right secondly you one can acquire hepatitis b after the screening test is done so what this provides is a fail safe now that this vaccine was recommended then to be given in the first day of life and then with two subsequent doses in 1991. Because of that, we've essentially eliminated hepatitis B infections in the less than 19-year-old. Amazing. Given that prior to that recommendation, we would see 18,000 cases a year of hepatitis B in children less than 10 years of age. Now, now many of those children, half of them got it by passing through a birth canal from a mother who was infected, but half half got it from a, a casual kiss from Uncle Bob who had hepatitis B infection silently and didn't know it. Wow, so I this has been a major advance, and, and that fail-safe of giving it in the first day has prevented these children from having to go on 20 to 25 years later to develop cancer or cirrhosis. Okay, that's fascinating. I, I
0: never thought of it that way. You know, my other question, too, is, again, understanding immunology and especially childhood immunology and how the immune system is growing. At, you know, at that stage, you know, a lot of the infants, they're, they're getting the passive antibodies from the mother. And their own immune system, you know, I know this from, you know, my cases with immune deficiency diseases, is it giving it that young gives them that lifelong protection? Is that what, you know, is that essentially what's happening? Because so, it seems so unusual to me. So many vaccines lose their, what we call immunogenicity, you know, their, their protection over many years. But is it something about giving it so young that they get a lifelong protection? It depends on the vaccine. I mean, so, so generally we try and immunize children before they would get the,
1: the disease. So, you know, for bacterial infections like pneumococcus or mouthless influenza type B, obviously you want to, or, or viral infections like rotavirus, you want to make sure that the child's vaccinated before six months of age, because between six and 24 months of age is when they get those diseases for the reason right. you just stated. Right. I mean, the mother will passively transfer her antibodies to the baby at the time of birth, but that those passively transferred antibodies have a half-life of about three weeks. So by the time you're six months of age, you're many half lives down the road, and that's why the child is is susceptible to that disease then. So you want to make sure that you're vaccinated before you're at risk for these diseases. That's the main reason. But but it depends on the vaccine. Some vaccines induce lifelong immunity, others don't.
0: Well with hepatitis B, isn't there only one vaccine or there's multiple that's being offered to the parents should they know about?
1: No, there's well, there's, there's three different va- vaccine manufacturers vaccine. to make vaccines for children less than 18 years of age. They're essentially equivalent. And, okay. and to get that boost, to get that, that prime and then two subsequent doses gives you essentially lifelong immunity, or at least now that the vaccine has been given to children for about 30 years, we know that they still have a memory response, if you will, okay. 30 years later. So it looks like it probably is going to be lifelong.
0: Okay. And you're not concerned. I mean, again, I was digging through things that about atrial septal defect, you know, that heart defect that sometimes children can have. And and again, the autism issue, again, nothing that you see compelling that would prevent that you think, that, you know, that children should get this vaccine. No,
1: okay. I'm not sure. I, I don't I don't know what it's going to take to end this autism question. I mean, you know, first it was the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine. I know, autism. but that's what
0: we're going to try to do today. I mean, I think, I th- you know, I, I think the thing is what's going to happen. We'll talk about this, obviously, as we go through it, is the, the discovery of what's causing autism. I mean, we could just jump for a second here. And again, you know, I think sometimes always in life we have to go with what we believe. I was at a conference about two years ago when a neurologist who, very respected, brought up a case and he showed video and it was a a child that had autism. And then, you know, he flashes onto the second video and you see this, you know, young, a teenager who no longer seemed to have you know, any of the autistic, you know, the you know, way he focused and everything. And it turned out he had had a fecal transplant, you know, and everybody's just jaw dropped in the room. So, again, I know I'm probably, you know, this is just, you know, a case. But because we don't understand what it is, I mean, my feeling, I think we maybe just spoke about this very briefly, is that who knows, it could be what we call a microbiome imbalance. I mean, something is driving that. And, you know, and again, as I said, parents, I'm sure, looking at any which way, how do I avoid that's the big scare.
1: I think you're born with autism. I mean there's there's mm. many there's many different Pieces of evidence to support that. Okay. The there was a study done by Ami Klin who's a researcher was at Yale now. He's at Emory. But what he did was he did studies looking just the first few years, first few weeks of life, to to see how children who eventually are diagnosed with autism attend to a face, a face that's talking mm. to them. And what happens is the child who's who eventually develops autism, when someone's talking to them, looks at the, the mouth, not the eyes. Whereas children who are developed or go on to be either developmentally normal or developmentally abnormal, but not autism. Will always look at the eyes. Similarly, there are now in utero studies where you can see that there's differences in the quantity of cerebrospinal fluid in a child who's eventually diagnosed with autism as compared to one who's not. There's differences in frontal lobe development in a child who's developed who's diagnosed with autism as compared to one who's not. There are certain genetic abnormalities that now are starting to be identified. So I think, I think that the the if you're autistic at five, you're autistic at two, you're autistic when you're born. And, and as far as the sort of the fecal transplant story, you know, autism spectrum disorder or primary autism certainly can wax and wane and certainly can improve as mm. one gets older. So I guess I, that end of one case worries me a little bit that one would would take too much from it. I, but understand. I think that's always, that's always the problem with yeah. those kinds no, of I'm
0: sources. glad you brought those up because, you know, again, it must be also again like on down syndrome. I don't know in the early days of down syndrome if people thought there was some environmental issue that was causing it, you know, obviously until they know that it's a genetic issue. So I'm glad you brought that up because again, I think that gives parents you know more solace and saying, okay, you know, I because again, as you can understand too, when a parent's giving their child a vaccine or whatever medication or anything, you know, they're they're feeling that responsibility. You know, it's not even about themselves; they're putting their child's health and decision making in their hands, and that's for all of us who are parents. It's always a it's a tough thing. Okay. So I'm going to shoot through a couple more vaccines just to ask you. Now, the rotavirus, which I know you were involved with development of, obviously really important. Quick question I want to ask you again. This might be partially my ignorance. You give it at two months and then again at four months. Again, obviously that's when a lot of these infants are susceptible. But can you remind me too, was there a problem with one of the original rotaviruses with something with intussusception with the bowel or am I thinking about a different vaccine?
1: No, that's it. So there, there was yeah. a, a, a vaccine called Rota Shield, which okay. was introduced in the United States in 1998. It was on the market for about 10 months and was found to be a rare cause of intestinal blockage called intussusception. Right. It, was, it was rare. I mean, it's about one per 30,000 okay. recipients, but it was real. And so we waited. And so the next two vaccines came out, one in 2006, one in 2008 that don't have that problem. And so... It's not an issue, but, you know, it's very quickly picked up, which should make people feel better.
0: Right. As you're saying, nothing is perfect. Look, everything doctors do every single day in their office, you know, there's always various outcomes. We don't know what's going to happen, but the key is to pick it up and hopefully learn and make it better. Is there anything else, though, in vaccines that you, again worry about? Let's say if you heard a history, let's say that child did get a seizure after one of the vaccines or something else that you would say delay, wait, avoid. I mean, just again, this is not just for parents. This is for pediatricians also, because they have to be the ones on the front lines explaining to the parents who maybe say, oh gosh, you know, my child had a high fever after that last vaccine, or they just didn't look right. Is there any advice you could give or you would give to your residents? So so
1: vaccines, apart from having causing pain or redness or tenderness at the site of injection, certainly can cause serious side effects. I mean, the, the most common one, and it's incredibly uncommon, but the most common is a severe allergic reaction you know, where you can get hives or difficulty breathing or, you know, low blood pressure or shock, that occurs in roughly 1.4 million doses. It's primarily associated with the gelatin stabilizer that's in a, a few of the vaccines. And that's why you ask parents to keep the children in the office for about 15 minutes after they got the vaccine, because if it's going to happen, it happens immediately. And doctors have, you know, epinephrine and other, other medications to handle that in the office. That's why you do it that way. So that does happen. Measles-containing vaccine can cause a lowering of the platelet count, platelets, or, you know, small cells in the blood that help the blood to clot. Sometimes you'll see these sort of, you know, so-called petechiae, which are broken broken blood vessels that you'll see in those children. But it's extremely rare. It doesn't have any long-term sequelae. The yellow fever vaccine can itself cause yellow fever. It happens in about one per 2.5 million doses. Again, this is not a routinely recommended vaccine for childhood. And if you're going to an endemic region, meaning region where yellow fever is common, you're much better off getting the vaccine than not getting it. But that that's a side effect of vaccines. The oral polio vaccine, which we don't use in this country anymore, haven't used it since the year 2000, that could itself cause polio. Every year we would see six day cases right. of paralytic polio caused by mm. the oral polio vaccine. That's why we don't use it anymore. But but that's pretty much it. Uh, yeah. You know, the all the fears that parents have about vaccines causing sort of permanent brain damage or multiple sclerosis or diabetes or asthma or allergies are just not supported by scientific evidence.
0: Yeah. yeah, no, you bring up some really good points. You just reminded me too because again I see I get calls to see patients who've had allergic reactions to vaccines. And you're right, gelatin, which is a lot of patients don't realize is made from I think pork. Is in there and also certain kinds of fish. It depends on the gelatin. And the other issue is some of the vaccines, I think even the hepatitis vaccine is made from yeast. Some people, believe it or not, are very highly sensitive to yeast. Well, just a
1: couple of things. So so it is really porcine gelatin. So you're right, it's porcine gelatin that is used in several vaccines. And then as far as yeast, it's not although people can be allergic to certain things of yeast, it's not the yeast proteins that are contained in vaccines. So you're not allergic to those proteins. Okay. So
0: can be oh, okay. Because people have asked me this. This is where they come up. And say, "Oh, should I get that's, tested? That's or, you know, evaluated?" BNHPB, you know,
1: human papillomavirus vaccines are made using, you know, so-called uh, Baker G cells. That's that's part of the way in which
0: it's made. Okay. You know, you made me think about something. I want to jump to. I saw somewhere, and this was interesting. You know, back in the day when our soldiers were going over to Iraq, and there was this whole worrisome thing about biological warfare. And they were vaccinating our soldiers to smallpox, you know again something that none of us have seen except in like maybe a movie where the these lesions and blisters look awful. but I think I read somewhere that you were against people being vaccinated against smallpox or even the military?
1: No, you're exactly right. So I was a voting member of the Advisory Committee for Immunization Practices to the CDC between 1998 and 2003. Mm. And there was, you know, before we invaded Iraq, there was an interest by the administration in vaccinating all frontline responders with smallpox vaccine. I was against that. I thought for many reasons you didn't need to do that. I was alone in that vote, but that did end up getting me on a 60 Minutes interview with Dan Rather about why I made that choice, Uh (laughs) which teaches me in the future to look up when I vote. I assume... More people would vote negatively, but
0: <laughs> well, why did you vote negative? You, I mean, because let's say that one of the soldiers was exposed to smallpox. Is it you thought it was, the danger outweighed right? The so here, benefit? Here's,
1: here is my thinking. For first of all, post-exposure prophylaxis works with smallpox vaccine much in the way that it works with rabies vaccine. So if you're exposed to smallpox, you can get a vaccine within 48 hours of be infected and be protected. Number two is, is, you know, we hadn't seen a case of smallpox in the world since the 70s. So can't we just wait till there's one mm. case of smallpox before we launch this program? Because the third reason is, you know, this is a, a vaccine that has a difficult safety profile.
0: Right. No, it's very dangerous. I know, and especially, you know, I used to see in Folly articles when I, you know, I saw patients with even something called eczema, atopic dermatitis. These patients could have devastating reactions. To the, right. that vaccine, so you're you're 100 right. But you brought up now again another interesting point because I was thinking about this. You know how we know that if somebody's exposed to hepatitis A? They go to a country and if they weren't vaccinated, you know they can get hepatitis A immunoglobulin. We also know that you know if someone gets exposed to chickenpox, and I'll actually I'll tell you in a second a crazy case that I had that we can give someone again immunoglobulin. To help lower the intensity of the infection, why don't we have more of these? Why aren't there more antidotes, so to speak, for a lot of these viral infections, which aren't as frequent as you were just saying for smallpox? I mean, when you know, to have some kind in that case, I guess you said it's a vaccination. I guess you're trying to induce what we call active immunity, not passive, where you have like these antidotes. Yeah,
1: no, it's a good question. I, I you know, we do have some of those available, obviously for hepatitis A, we do for hepatitis B, we do for chickenpox, we do have, you know, immune globulin. Mm -hmm. I suspect it's more of a financial reason than anything else. It's not really worth it to the companies to spend time and money on that. It's something you're going to give you know, once in a lifetime at the most, and that's not where the money is. I I, I think that's probably actually the main reason. And you're right. You'd much rather have active immunity than passive immunity. You'd much rather be able to respond because you have memory immune cells than because you're being given somebody else's antibodies.
0: Right. Well, one other thing, too, which sometimes comes up, and there's also been outbreaks of this. I remember among hockey players, or believe it or not, professional hockey players, sometimes it was going through that. What's your feeling about natural immunity versus vaccine immunity? Just out of curiosity, meaning I had the chicken pox. I think I had the measles. Just out of curiosity, do people who've actually had the disease supposedly have better immunity than a vaccine? Yes. <laughs> yes. I mean, I had
1: measles when I was a child. My daughter, on the other hand, who's now 24, got the measles vaccine. Now, I think it's fair to say that the the quantity of antibodies that were generated in my my bloodstream following my natural measles infection was probably three times greater than the quantity of antibodies generated in her bloodstream after a measles vaccine. Similarly, the, the frequency or numbers of memory immunological cells in my immune organs is no doubt greater. Than it hurts. But the point is I had to suffer a natural infection in order to get that. Sure. And unfortunately, sure. I didn't get, <laughs> uh, you know, encephalitis, meaning infection of the brain. I didn't get, get pneumonia. Right. So I was fortunate, right. but, but not everybody was. Now the question, the better question I think is, is immunization good enough? Of course it is. I mean, we eliminated measles from this country, the highly contagious disease, a highly prevalent disease with vaccination. So so if vaccination was good enough, and that's the answer. You can induce the immunity that is close enough to the immunity induced by natural infection to eliminate a disease. That's the good news.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, I, I have to also share a case here. This is really unbelievable. It was relatively early in my career, and you know, when, in my private practice, I was doing a lot of allergy work, and I had a young boy, he was probably about six years old, who had a very strong peanut allergy, which we now know is a huge problem. And if he... Accidentally got exposed to any peanut, he would go into anaphylaxis. So I took care of him as a you know as a young child, and sure enough, unfortunately, he was going out one day with his mom. They went to a restaurant, and he ordered some kind of ice cream sundae. Of course, they asked, please make sure no peanuts. And unfortunately, at the bottom of the ice cream dish in this you know place, there was Reese's pieces that had peanut in it, and he immediately started to go into anaphylaxis. He was rushed to the hospital. I met him at the emergency room there. And he was then being treated you know, aggressively with uh, what we call adrenaline, epinephrine. But this is where the story takes a crazy turn. Besides the anaphylaxis, he had underlying asthma. And so for the whole couple of days in the hospital, he was getting high-dose intravenous corticosteroids to control everything that was going on. A couple of days later, he goes home. And his mom calls me frantically, that he can't walk or he's stumbling all over the place. And I'm like, oh, my God, you know. So I went again now, met him again at the hospital, evaluate him. He had what was called ataxia for our listeners. It's where you just, you can't walk straight. So it's quite frightening. And we were going through his list of his medications, whatever, and nothing seemed to be the case. And then we found out a family member at home had the chicken pox and he had gotten a viral encephalitis, essentially inflammation in the brain. So he wasn't, you know, walking. And thank God I, you know, through great medical care and praying, you know, he pulled through completely normal. But again, to see that even once in your lifetime is enough to make you realize if he, if he had been vaccinated against, I don't know if it was available even at that point to varicella, that would never have been an no, issue.
1: You know, and the varicella vaccine was available in 1995. But you're right. I mean, the, the, that virus could infect the so-called cerebellum, you know, and cause ataxia, and that was probably the most common cause of cerebralitis. When we see cerebralitis come into our hospital, that's the first thing we think of: is chickenpox.
0: Yeah, it was. It was frightening. I never forgot it. Okay, the last few things that I just want to ask you: What do you think about in the future of vaccines? Are we going to have a future vaccines to some of these tick-borne diseases like Lyme? And I, mean, I know they tried one, and that didn't work out so well, but that's become a huge thing. Obviously, Zika, all of these. These mosquitoes and ticks, they're, you know, they're taking over the, the world. <laughs> well,
1: it's, certainly it, it's not hard to make a Zika vaccine. I mean, Zika is a, is a fl- so-called, it's in the category of flaviviruses. We have a flavivirus vaccine, which is the yellow fever vaccine. Now we actually have a second flavivirus vaccine, which is a dengue vaccine that was just recommended for licensure at the last FDA vaccine advisory committee meeting on March the 7th. So those are two flavivirus vaccines that are in existence. So I have no doubt that we could make a Zika vaccine.
0: Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, you know, really, it was just two years ago. and Now, of course, it died down. I mean, people were afraid to go to any South American country, the Caribbean, even parts of Florida. I mean, I knew lots of friends of ours that had their daughters who were the age of potentially getting pregnant. I mean, they were just not going to those places. And then you saw those pictures of the microcephaly with the small brains. You know, it's it's petrifying. But now, again, we didn't hear about it too much again, it's sort of like out of the out of the picture. It'll be back
1: remember how horrified people were by seeing pictures of babies born with, you know, abnormally small brains because of infection with Zika. And Zika, if you're infected with Zika in the first trimester, you have a 15% chance of delivering a child who has severe birth defects. If you're infected with rubella, the German measles virus, in the first trimester, you have an 85% chance. Rubella is a much more efficient cause of birth defects than Zika. So, So it's interesting that as we use less measles-containing vaccine, which also contains mumps and rubella vaccines, you know, you always worry that rubella could come back in this country, a disease that we eliminated by 2005. And if it does, then you're going to get to experience what the same fear that people had when Zika, you know, came into southern states.
0: Yeah, that would be very unfortunate. Well, I have two last things that I'm just going to bring up. As I said, I loved your book, Vaccinated. Again, just the, the history behind vaccinations and obviously the way you describe your admiration for, for Maurice Hillman. But I think what really needs to be done is we need to have a video or movie called Unvaccinated. And I guess you'll have to get the rights to it because – and I will have to reach out to my son. He works in Hollywood because I think like Inconvenient Truth, you know, until people saw Al Gore getting up there and showing the glaciers melting and all these other issues, that it will not hit home, you know, that the importance of of people, you know, and parents having their children vaccinated – so are you up for that project? <laughs>
1: well, I'm not a movie filmmaker, maybe we can get your son to do it. I, I know there are some people that are interested in doing this. So hopefully they'll be able to get the funds to do it because I think you're right. We need really something important. to shake us up other than just children suffering.
0: Yeah. yeah. You know, and the last thing I, I was like debating whether to say this, but I, I like to say, this, I'm going to end with a little bit of a story here today too. It's a little based on a, sort of a biblical parable, but it's about this guy, Joe, who was very righteous and always did good things for people, led a good life, and then one day there was the news that a uh, flood was coming to his town and so as people were all abandoning and leaving the city uh, a friend of joe's pulls up with a big suv and says joe get in the car he goes you know the flood's coming we got to got to get out of town and joe says no no god's going to save me i you know i'm i'm going to stick around and then obviously the floods coming into the town and joe has to go up to the second level of his house And a good friend of his comes by in a nice boat and says, Joe, come on, you got to jump in. We got to get out of here before the flood does us in. He goes, no, no, you know, God's going to save me. I'm not worried. And then, of course, Joe, as the water rises even higher, gets on the roof of his house. And he's really lucky. He's got a rich friend who's got a helicopter who drops the ladder down, you know, for him to climb up and get out before it's too late. And Joe declines that offer as well. And then, you know, the story, as the story goes, you know, Joe passed away and he's up in heaven and he looks at God and he says, God, I, goes, I don't understand it. I was such a good man. He goes, why didn't you save me? And God turns to him and says, Joe, who do you think sent you the, the SUV? And he looks at him and he goes, who do you think sent you the boat? And Joe, you know, has this pale look on his face. And finally he says, Joe, who do you think sent you the helicopter? So with that story, I think that people have to realize whatever your perspective is and your religious faith, that to utilize what we're given on this world to make our lives healthier and safer. So I really appreciate Dr. Paul Officer coming on, as I said, one of the leading experts in the country, probably in the world, for sharing his expertise. And I hope it's a benefit to all the parents who listen to this and pediatricians as well. Thank you. Thanks for asking me. For our listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast and want to continue the discussion, please go to my Twitter feed at Dean Mitchell MD. Thank you.
1: Thank you for listening to The Smartest Doctor in the Room with host Dr. Dean Mitchell. You can continue this conversation on Instagram at Dean Mitchell MD, Facebook
0: at Mitchell Medical Group or at DeanMitchellMD.com.